Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Index funds. Simple, cheap, dependable. Over decades, passive investing has delivered superior returns and surged in popularity. But some claim the rise of indexing has come at the cost of less competitive markets and inflated prices for consumers. And in today's dumb question of the week, how high would bond yields have to go for you to sell your stocks? Okay, let's get into it. So index funds, Romin, we love them and I won't hear a bad word said about them. But today we are going to have to face some critical facts. It's true that for a long time, the active management industry has been kind of slagging off index funds and saying they might do more harm than good. Yeah, it's classic fear, uncertainty and doubt. If you see something which threatens your livelihood, well, clearly you're going to push back against it and make up as much stuff as you can to slag it off. And my particular favourite was a quote from a Bernstein analyst who wrote a paper called The Silent Road to Serfdom, Why Passive Investing is Worse Than Marxism. (laughs) (laughs) Worse than, yeah. And he says, a supposedly capitalist economy where the only investment is passive is worse than either a centrally planned economy or an economy with active market-led capital management. So pretty strong words. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get the argument as if passive became so big that there was no price discovery, then yeah, I guess it would be worse than communism because at least in a communist society, the central planners are trying to make it work and find the right prices and quotas. But that argument's always struck me as kind of a fiction because passive investing is just not yet, at least at that scale. And frankly, I don't think it ever will be. I think there'll come a point when even active investors will be using a lot of passive vehicles to do their investment at a kind of higher level. It's already the case. If you have a global macro investor, they often use passive funds to express their views. Yeah. I do kind of sympathise with the active managers a little bit, though, because in this capitalist economy we live in, price discovery, like active managers competing against each other, trying to buy stocks that are undervalued and sell ones that are overvalued and thereby allocate capital to the firms that are going to flourish and benefit us all. That is a social good, really, in some way. And passive funds, we are freeloading on that. So I do like understand the argument, but you know, I still want my cheap passive funds, right? It's a little bit like having house cleaners. You know, I'm not going to be someone who likes doing housework, but I'm very grateful to the people who actually do clean my house. And they actually love my dog, Teddy. So that's another bonus. You want to get one of those little Roombas. That's the passive management equivalent. Yeah, that would scare Ted. <laughs> <laughs> I did tutor a child whose Labrador used to ride on their huge floor cleaning device. He loved it. Last time I was at Heathrow Airport, I saw they had these like industrial size automated cleaning machines just going around. And my daughter loved it so much, we had to follow it around, just around the airport. Security looking at us, dodgy. So I'm grateful to these active managers who do that job for me, but I'm not going to pay them a fee to do it. But thankfully, someone's still willing to pay the fees so we can ride on their coattails, or at least the average of all of their coattails. But the point here is, we both don't really believe this index funds are communist argument, but... I recently came across a whole nother argument about the harms index funds might cause. And it did make me think, and I did kind of go down a rabbit hole, looking at academic papers, (laughs) pretending to be an intellectual. It's been a ride this week, Romin. I know. I love the uh, chat you had on Slack. It said, I'm going down the rabbit hole. And I've emerged to be the case for the prosecution here. I hate to do it, but someone is going to have to take the other side and outline the case against index funds. 
from a macroeconomic point of view. Okay, let's have at it then. So the case goes something like this. The big passive investors, this could be index funds, mutual funds, pension funds, whatever, where they invest in a broad basket of loads of different companies, often within the same sector. So they might own all the major banks or all the major airlines, for example. When you have those companies, those big passive companies, dominating the market, as they have come to do now, and they are the biggest shareholders of the large cap companies, then there is a big incentive there for those individual companies that they own to compete less aggressively with each other. Because what a big passive investor cares about is maximising the profits of the industry as a whole, rather than any individual firm. So if companies work together to keep prices high and margins high, that would be quite a good thing for you as a diversified investor. Yeah, I find this argument fascinating. I think it's really interesting. If you do own everything, you don't want people to compete with each other. You want all boats to be lifted up together. You don't want one boat necessarily to win at the cost of the other one. And ideally, you want all margins to go up at the same time. And that's something we actually see. We've seen it. Like there's circumstantial evidence that this is happening. So look at margins in the United States. There are various ways to see this. You can look at the aggregate margin for all US stocks. Another way to look at it in economic data is to look at the labour income share and see how that's varied over time. And again, what you see is the amount of money that goes to companies versus their workers is rising as management gets more money. So the senior managers get more of the profits. And at the same time, the shareholders get a lot of the profits, either through share buybacks or dividend payments. Yeah, that's the key thing here, isn't it? Passive investing has kind of put us as investors and companies all on the same team in a way. And if you zoom out from a macro perspective and just look at economic growth and who's getting the rewards of that, there's kind of now this shareholder class where more of the returns are going versus labour, as you say. But the question is, how does this work in practice? So if we walk through it step by step, the idea is that if any one company does a naughty thing, maybe that's raising their prices above the market price or avoiding taxes, say, they would generally be worse off. They might lose market share or they might get prosecuted for trying to avoid taxes. However, if all the companies or a big chunk of them do this naughty thing, then the companies might get away with it because they'd all have higher profits and the authorities can't prosecute everyone for avoiding taxes, right? But you'd have to have some kind of agreement between the companies to do this thing. It's called price fixing, right? And it's illegal if companies get in the same room and say, oh, let's all jack up our prices by 10% this year. You're literally not allowed to do that. And many companies have been prosecuted for that over the years. So the idea is that this common ownership, whereby passive investing has risen and we own all the companies together, has kind of somehow had this same effect of getting all the companies together to price fix without actually doing it. It's just like happened by the invisible hand of the index fund. So I'll channel my inner Spock here and say, fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) But do index funds have this power? Are they big enough? Even if we can't identify the mechanism quite yet. I'd argue probably not, not yet. If you look at the amount of active versus passive money, sure, we've had huge inflows into passive, but it's still not at the stage, I don't think, where it dominates completely. So in the latest Morningstar active versus passive flows document, 
they show that if you look at the active assets in US equity, for example, that makes up about $4.9 trillion. Passive makes up about $7 trillion. So passive is now bigger, but is it so big that it completely dominates the market? Not yet, I don't think. Certainly not for US equity. But don't you just need 51% of the voting power, in theory, to you know, steer the companies in the direction you want? Yeah, that's true. If you look at the ownership of companies, and you can do that very easily, then certainly companies like Vanguard and BlackRock always feature at the top of most of these tables of share ownership. Which is no surprise. Yeah, they own everything. And they maybe own about 2%, 3% of everything. But it's still not the case that they own 50% of everything. They own way more than 2 or 3%. In some cases, it really depends on how popular a particular stock is. Yeah, so let's look at an example. Why not look at Apple? So 60% of it is owned by institutions. These would be pension funds, hedge funds, Warren Buffett. Well, Warren Buffett's an institution in the sense that he's a legend, but is he an institutional investor? <laughs> well, he, he owns via Berkshire Hathaway. So yes, yeah, certainly an institutional investor. And if we look at the largest holdings, Vanguard comes out top. They own $227 billion worth of shares. BlackRock second, $181 billion, and Berkshire Hathaway's third, $159 billion. And if you look at that top table, it's all institutional investors. State Street is another one. And this is out of a market cap of around, I don't know, $2.5 trillion, right? So collectively, the passive investors do own a sizable share of a company like Apple and would certainly be influential at board level if they decided to use their power in the same direction. So Vanguard owns about 8% of Apple, Berkshire Hathaway owns 5%. So yeah, these are very chunky holdings for such huge companies. But would they be able to determine what the company does? They'd certainly have an influence, but I don't think they're going to be telling the CEO what to do. Well, I guess that's the question, isn't it? Is from a market theory point of view, like modern portfolio theory, the big index funds should want this to be true, that companies are maximising returns for the industry rather than themselves, right? That would make mathematical sense. But what's the evidence that that somehow happens? Well, the kind of foundational academic paper on this topic was by Azar, Schmoltz and Teku called Anti-Competitive Effects of Common Ownership. And they looked specifically at the airline industry in the United States, where it's dominated by just a handful of big airlines. And they find that when airlines have increased common ownership, as in more passive ownership, and therefore reduced incentives to compete, prices for consumers are higher and output is lower, as in they start cutting flights and transporting fewer passengers. And specifically, they looked at 14 years of market firm level quarterly data, and they find that airline ticket prices in the US are somewhere between 3 to 7% higher due to the effect of common ownership compared to a world where every firm was just owned by a different investor. Now that 3 to 7%, I think that's probably quite a small effect. And I'm not completely convinced by that. I assume they did their stats properly. Yeah, I know, Roman. But academics like went wild for this. And if you just, you know, go into one of the journals and type in effects of common ownership, there's thousands of papers now on it. And I know the investment industry is kind of like, yeah, all right, no, it's back in your box. They don't really care. But <laughs> academics really, really think this is a real effect. Yeah, so in this case, United, which is the one of the largest airlines in the United States, their top five shareholders owned about 50% of the firm, and they're all institutional investors. 
yeah, that was at the time of this study. And those same shareholders also owned the biggest slugs of Southwest Delta and, you know, the other major airlines. So the stage is set there for price fixing. But the question is always like, what's the mechanism, right? Do the prices just get higher on their own? Yeah. Or is it some kind of active nudging on the part of the owners of the company? And like I said, it's not just been in the airline industry where academics have claimed to find this effect. So there is also pharmaceuticals, where researchers showed that where there's more common ownership, the generic drug manufacturers, they're less likely to come in and compete with a big branded firm. And also in retail banking in the US, common ownership seems to have depressed the rates on offer for consumers. Now, a lot of people, I think, kind of instinctively feel that, don't they? That's like, banks are not passing through these higher interest rates to me. And if you think about it as investors, like you, Roman, you own a banking ETF, right? You're an owner of all the banks in the US. You presumably would rather it that the banks, so long as they don't act illegally, don't start undercutting each other by offering higher rates on deposits, right? Well, if they did that, and some of them were more successful than the others, net-net, I kind of couldn't care less because I own all of them. And if some of them come to the top of the pile and others slip out of it, from my point of view, I don't really care. You know, as long as the aggregate index moves upwards, that's fine by me. And that could happen. You know, you could just have three companies which dominate and the rest of them just go down the pan. But if there's heavy competition, they're all going to be out competing each other and squashing profit margins across the industry, right? So yeah, you might have some that win and some that don't, but the winners are going to be less winning (laughs) in a world where they're price fixing. Yeah, if they take each other down, clearly that's not in my interest. If it's a beggar thy neighbour type of strategy where they just kind of decide a Pyrrhic victory is worthwhile and the whole sector goes into less profit. But I think that's unlikely. I mean, there's been these academic papers which look at it in fine detail, right, and claim to find this effect. They don't tend to have a smoking gun where they say, look, here's the emails where they're coordinating prices, right? They don't have that. They're just saying the effect where we're comparing common ownership seems to be influential. But if we step back and look at the macro picture, like you said before, that profit margins have gone up significantly over the last 20 years in the US. And a lot of people have made this claim that there's monopoly pricing power in the market. That's the only way you get such high margins that stick around. Like people don't come and eat Google's lunch. Certainly for the mega caps, I think that's true. I think they do have this status now where there's not much in terms of competition and they really can set prices. You look at margins at Microsoft, for example, absolutely huge. And they've been that way for a very long time. So I think that is a problem. And it's really difficult to stop that happening. Usually it's the government that steps in, which which actually splits up companies like Microsoft. But the sort of smoking gun, if you like, around big tech is those massive billions of dollars that Google pays to Apple every year to be the default search engine on the iPhone, which is incredibly valuable. And for example, the EU at the moment, the competition authorities there are saying, hmm, is this anti-competitive? And if it's going to be anybody who stops this happening, it's going to be governments. So somebody's going to stop the party eventually once it becomes too extreme. And just for the last piece of evidence I put forward for the prosecution here, Roman, (laughs) before you can push back and tell me why this is all nonsense. There was another paper by Danielle Chain called The Perils of Common Ownership, The Flooding Phenomenon. And this was not around consumer prices and those being boosted. This was around corporate tax avoidance. And she coins the term flooding 
which is kind of what we hinted at earlier, that where there's a high level of institutional investment in a company, they tend to do more aggressive forms of tax avoidance. And it kind of happens all together. So a lot of firms start doing the same kind of tax avoidance at the same time. And the tax authorities don't really have the scale and the resources to prosecute everyone. And so she ascribes this to the rise of you know, passive investing and common ownership between the mega caps. But think about it. If you're a tax accountant at one of these companies, and you are obviously going to be aware of what your buddies are doing at the other companies, if you find that you know, there's some kind of tax loophole, oh, look, we can list in Ireland. Well, you're going to do the same thing. It's not about common ownership. It's just common sense. But I think her paper sort of tries to untangle that by looking at the varying amounts of common ownership between companies and showing that tax avoidance tends to be more dubious, aggressive, like whatever (laughs) word you want to use, at companies and within industries which have high levels of common ownership. Well, I guess one factor which makes common ownership higher is going to be whether a company's big. Big companies are going to be commonly owned. And so this is just another way of saying that big companies do the same kinds of thing. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so I rest my case for the prosecution after all that. So let's look at the counter evidence then, your case for the defence. And it was weird that like when this academic train started getting in motion and all these authors were publishing these papers saying, you know, the economy looks like there's a lot of monopoly power here. The prices are going up and it's probably because of passive investing. Immediately. BlackRock came out with this mountain of research, which I've sort of half read. (laughs) One of the papers I read through and it was like, oh, this is a pretty good rebuttal. And I looked who'd funded it. It It's like BlackRock branding at the bottom. I was like, okay. (laughs) But still. So let's hear what BlackRock said. One of the things they said, the economics literature purporting to link index funds and higher prices is based on fragile evidence and fundamental misconceptions, and it does not provide a plausible causal explanation of how common ownership can lead to higher prices, which actually is a fair point. It is a fair point. So let's think through what the causal explanation could be. Like I said, there is no smoking gun here. But one idea is that you don't need all these companies to get in a kind of smoke-filled room and shut all the blinds and agree to fix prices. Perhaps the very fact that index funds are more likely to leave management alone, they're not going to be in there like activist investors pressuring them to compete much harder. Perhaps that in and of itself is enough to tend the economy towards anti-competitiveness. I kind of buy that argument because everyone says that when you list your company, suddenly your shareholders are in your face and a lot of people regret it, you know, making a company public for that very reason. So by having owners who are less hands-on, you have that freedom and perhaps that's the kind of incentive. Yeah. And I also just think once companies get mature and they're not being gung-ho and rapidly expanding into new markets, maybe the management is quite happy to just be lazy and collect the profits and it needs an activist to shake them out of that laziness. And that's not going to be Vanguard, right? Vanguard's not going to come in and kick their butts. So that's one argument that it's not that there's any conspiracy here. It's just that the pressure is dialed down on management. But there are other arguments. So to go back to that foundational paper, the anti-competitive effects of common ownership, they claim that there are three plausible mechanisms here. One is that common owners use their voice to influence management, i.e. they call them up on the phone and say, hmm, why are your margins slipping? Or they say, I've heard that your competitor is doing really well in this market. Maybe just leave them be over there and you go and focus on this other one. Do you know what I mean? There might be like 
this phenomenon of getting on the phone to management. And I know that BlackRock does speak to management. It's not completely hands-off. Yeah, there is communication. I think people are aware, though, that if there is communication and journalists find out about it, there's going to be a hell of a storm and huge pushback. So that probably stops them from doing it. But look, if it's a secure communication, yeah. It's possible, isn't it? It's just, yeah, we don't know of that. And that's not illegal. There are lots of people who've done that in the past, either publicly or privately. If you're a big shareholder, it's in your interest to make sure the companies run the way you like it. Certainly, it's not illegal. But I think there's a big difference between someone personally owning a slice of a company, a big slice of it, and being activist, rather than someone like Vanguard, which is just like a pass-through structure almost, holding it on behalf of their customers whose views they don't know, and then forcing their own personal view, corporate view, onto the company that they own. I think that would be very different. And they have got a lot of heat for that, especially BlackRock, because, for example, on their environmental and ESG policies, they use their voice and they want the companies in the index to maintain good standards around ESG. And on the right in America, they're not so happy that BlackRock was doing that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think in some cases that has happened. But overall, I think it's unlikely, particularly when it comes to something like margins or saying don't compete for this product. I think that's much less likely. It would be a big risk to do that, wouldn't it? Certainly, yeah. Career risk. And the second mechanism that is suggested in this paper is that management incentives, i.e. pay, is used to reward executives for less aggressive competition. Certainly that could work, right? People respond to incentives. And if you construct them right, then maybe you could kind of get an implicit bargain across the industry. Maybe, but it would only work for the C-suite. It wouldn't work for the rest of the company. So if you say to the CEO, who you can talk to -to one-to-one, well, your pay review's coming up and we're going to vote on it. Oh, look, you're competing with this other company and that's not in our interest. (laughs) That conversation would certainly get the CEO's attention. Yeah, if it was done explicitly like that, but I don't think that's the claim here. I think the claim is that management are often rewarded with stock incentives based purely on their share price, for instance, their own company's share price, which could just be tracking beta. The market is going up, tech companies are all doing well. If you run a tech company, woohoo, you've hit your stock incentives. Maybe what the incentive should be instead is that your stock compensation is benchmarked against your competitors. So if your share price does better than your rival firms, you get your stock grant. Not if you just are all going up together. Incentives for alpha. Yeah, I can see that. But you see what I mean? Like, if a management is incentivized just for their own stock price to go up, they're quite happy if all the boats rise together. It certainly helps them. And they still get a big payoff. That's certainly true. But you'll always be thinking, if I crush the competition, my share price is going to go up more. That's always at the back of your mind as someone who runs a company. Plus, you have to remember these are quite arrogant people who rise to the top of a management structure who kind of do have laws of the universe mentality where, yeah, I'm better than everyone else. So is my company. Under my leadership, we're going to rule the world. That's going to naturally be the type of person that runs these companies. Yeah. And the third way that this paper proposes there might be an influence from common ownership is on the voting power, which is like the most basic thing, right? They own a lot of stock, they can vote. So there's one example of this from the academic Martin Schmaltz. He had an article in 2015 called How Passive Funds Prevent Competition. And this was around the company DuPont, which is a chemicals company, and how one of their big investors was the hedge fund Tryon, who were trying to, again, 
push it to compete more aggressively with its competitors, such as Monsanto, and they were waging a proxy fight at board level. And they lost, largely because they were outvoted by Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, the big institutions. (laughs) And the claim was that this hedge fund was annoyed because the royalties DuPont was paying to Monsanto were pretty substantial and arguably above market price, is what they claimed. They were a little bit annoyed, it seemed, with the passive funds because they said, well, the passive funds don't really care because it's just money going from one pocket to the other, this high royalty payment. Whereas we only own DuPont. We care. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's probably the most convincing one I've heard so far. But to quote one of the rebuttals from BlackRock, and I seem to be becoming a mouthpiece for BlackRock here, (laughs) they make the point that not only do you hold companies commonly within a sector, if you're a big passive investor, you also hold them across different industries. So let's say that all the airline carriers increased the price of tickets and there was some kind of common factor that allowed them to do that. And it was common ownership driving it. Unfortunately, 99% of the portfolio that BlackRock owns is not going to be in airlines. And for all those other companies, they have to pay for their executives to travel across America or across the world. And other costs, which are going to be common to that remaining portfolio. So it's going to be a drag on their overall position. That's the best rebuttal I've heard for this sign of broad-based common ownership through passive funds. In the case of your banking ETF, if you own that, you kind of are incentivized for the banks to price fix if they could. But if you just own the total stock market index fund, yeah, you're kind of not because there's a knock-on effect from higher prices in one sector. I guess you could say it's disputed among academics, even if the weight of evidence has been growing that this is a real effect potentially. But I guess from an investment point of view, the question is, do regulators care? Well, they do seem to. There have been some studies which they've launched. So for example, in 2018, the US Federal Trade Commission gathered a group of academics, regulators, investment executives and lawyers for a hearing to discuss the matter. So it's on the regulator radar and they are kind of looking into it. Yeah, the same is true from the Department of Justice in the US and the OECD and even the EU has kind of got working papers around this topic. So yeah, they're not ignoring it, but they're not fully sold on it. And I guess the question is, what could you even do about it anyway? Yeah, if the entire market is going to be doing something, it's very difficult to legislate against that. There's not really any obvious policy solutions that don't involve ripping up the structure of financial markets. I think the voting proxy thing, we've discussed that in the past, where instead of BlackRock voting based on their own opinion, they actually pass through the opinions of their passive shareholders. So if there was a mechanism to do that, and with tech it's certainly becoming possible for that to happen, then you wouldn't have just one undifferentiated view from BlackRock Vanguard and so on. Yeah, I think that has to happen because these are not really BlackRock shares to be voting. They're our shares. They just hold them for us. And one thing you can bet on is that there'll be hugely disparate views amongst the shareholders. I mean, there are some more draconian policy measures that have been proposed. So I know there was one put forward in 2016 by some professors which suggested limiting institutional investors to holding just 1% of an industry or a sector. Or alternatively, they would only be allowed to invest in one company in each sector, which kind of just destroys diversified investing, right? That would just be like, well, back to active management we go. It's kind of sensible. You know, if you look at the stocks within a sector, they're usually highly correlated. But then, you know, you're going to effectively be choosing a winner. Yeah, so it's Pepsi or Coca-Cola. Place your bets now, isn't it? (laughs) 
<laughs> and then a passive fund won't be a passive fund. It'll just be a bunch of bets. I don't think that can happen. That would be so extreme. And people would find ways around it, right? You just invest in both of those different mutual funds. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that Jack Bogle, who was kind of like the godfather of index funds and passive investing, he died in 2019. And kind of shortly before his death, he did issue a warning about the power of index funds. He didn't like fully buy into this common ownership influencing competition theory. He called that absurd. But he did say, it seems only a matter of time until index mutual funds cross the 50% mark. We already have. If that were to happen, I do not believe that such concentration would serve the national interest. That's coming from Jack Bogle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's an issue. But because of all the mechanisms we've discussed, I don't think it's going to actually be a problem for some time, if ever. I think we just need to get them to be acting less as a block, which is what you talked about with pushing decisions back to individual shareholders. I mean, the main issue, if this were to be a real phenomenon, is that over the long term, it makes the economy less efficient. Monopoly pricing power, as we know, sucks capital away from productive firms and consumers and is not good for economic growth in the long term. Now, of course, I favour index investing, as do many of the pension crafters in our community. But certainly we do discuss investing in active funds as well. So if you want to become part of the conversation, why not join our membership? To do that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is how high would bond yields have to go, Romin, for you to sell your stocks? Because I know that your core portfolio is 100% equity. But I also know that you like bonds and temptingly high bond yields. Well, let's begin by looking at yields right now. So if we look across the UK yield curve, then it's around 5% at the short end, then there's a kind of dip in the middle, and then it goes back up to about 5% from the 20-year onwards point. So that's the shape of the yield curve right now. So by buying one of those government bonds, you can earn that 5% of the short end with very little risk. And that's definitely had a, a negative effect on stock markets, the whole buy a T-bill and chill concept. But I guess to sell your stock portfolio because you thought, wow, yields are super attractive right now, you should really be looking at the long end of the curve because you're a long-term investor, right? And you can't guarantee that these short yields will be around for the next 10 years. And if you're going to be putting the money away for a long period of time, what you care about is the long-term performance. And it's a long-term real performance above inflation. Yeah. And there, bonds really fall down. So the big risk is you're going to put your money into a bond. Yes, you learn 5%. But if inflation is 4%, then real yield will be very low. And there'd be a significant opportunity cost, usually, because stocks would outperform that. Yeah, usually by around 4% on average, certainly over the last century and a bit. So the last time I looked at real yields, let's say in the US for now, 10-year tips give you around 2%, which is a real return, right? That's above inflation. You could lock in 2.5% every year for 10 years. Now, I know for a fact that that's not enough to make you sell your stocks because you still have your stocks. But how high would it have to go? Would 3%, 4%, 5% real yield be enough for you to go, wow, I actually should change my core portfolio? We're still a long way off it. What I'd do is I'd look at the long-term average real return, real total return for owning stocks, which is around 6% in the US, 5% in the UK. So I think if it got to about... 4% real return 
on government bonds, then suddenly you're thinking, well, I'm not taking the volatility risk. I'm still getting 4% real return, which I've locked in. Now that's starting to look a little bit more attractive. And of course, if it was 6% real, well, then it's going to be roughly equal to stocks or maybe even higher than stocks. And at that point, I just think, yeah, that's a definite swap. And you've said before that the long-term return of stocks is, what is it, 6 or 7% above inflation, so real return. But presumably that's across all interest rate environments. In an environment where yields, real yields, are sort of 5 6%, the return of stocks, I'm going to guess, is a lot lower. Yeah, because of this reason, people will be flooding out of the stock market and flooding into these inflation-linked bonds because you can lock in that rate. Could I suggest that it's too late to sell your stocks and buy bonds by the time yields have got to 5% real? Yeah, you'd actually do it well before that, rationally, because you'd be thinking, well, you know, I'm taking less risks, so these are more attractive than stocks, which have a higher volatility. Now, how close are we to that point already? Not very. 2%, 2 2.5% for 10-year US Treasuries, not particularly high. That's the tips, isn't it? Yeah, for tips. Treasury inflation protected securities. And we have an equivalent in the UK, don't we? You call them linkers, but their official name is index-linked gilts. That's right. And a rough calculation for the UK shows that it's about just under 1% for the UK. What, real yield? Yeah, this is a real yield. Although, frankly, it's really hard to find. Thank you, Bank of England, for your fabulous website. And I guess it does matter which country's inflation-linked treasury you're buying, right? Because you're going to be experiencing the inflation in your own country. Yeah, you've got to go domestic because you don't want to take the currency risk. Okay, so I'm an investing genie. You've rubbed the lamp. Here I am, and I'm offering you 3.5% as a real yield for 10 years with no credit risk. Are you selling your stocks in exchange for this? No. I was trying to pick a number which would make you wobble. I wasn't sure what to go for. <laughs> but if the genie had offered me maybe 5%, defo. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.